This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The poem says, human voices wake us and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So in this episode of The Great Myths, I wanted to go over the story of the Egyptian god Osiris. And in thinking about the best way to do this, I came up with this uh, small outline. The first thing I'll go over are a few examples of what I mentioned in the first episode on Egyptian mythology, which was the Egyptian reticence for mentioning violence being done to their gods. They did not want to put that into writing, as it were. The second thing will be to connect that attitude towards writing that fear to the story of Osiris itself. And finally, to go over three versions of the basic myth of Osiris. The first will be a small and compact and complete modern summary of what it was that happened to Osiris. The second will be the most complete version of that story that we have from the ancient world, which in this case comes from the Roman writer Plutarch. And the last one will be what is called the most complete version of the Osiris myth from the Egyptians themselves. But as we will see by the time we get there, it is not that complete at all. So to the first matter. I mentioned that the Egyptians were were hesitant to mention that the gods could be injured or harmed at all, uh, putting it in writing, as it were. And when I went looking for uh, the sources that I remembered reading about this, what I came to see was that this was bound up in the Egyptian view of written language. And I just wanted to read a few remarks from some Egyptologists about that. The first comes from uh, Douglas Brewer, and he is talking here about the various types of, quote, heaven insurance that were built into Egyptian tombs. And he says, long after death, offerings of food and other tangible needs of the deceased were supposed to be brought to the tomb by family members, cult priests, or other worshipers on a regular basis in order to sustain his soul. But... Should these gifts not be forthcoming, the pictures of offerings painted or carved in relief on the tomb walls could substitute for the real thing. The Egyptians believed that even a written reference could substitute for the actual object, so that the walls of tombs were not only decorated with scenes of offerings, but also with standardized texts listing food and drink. 
And that's just a remarkable passage because it shows that they not only believed in the magic of language, but also the magic of of a uh, of pictures, of pictures themselves. And bound up in this is what I mentioned in the first episode on Egyptian myth, the deep fear of death. So we can even see this, how a belief in the magical qualities of paintings and pictures and language could also be something that was even developed or come to as a result of some kind of fear of death. Uh, the second passage comes from Aidan Dodson and Salima Ikram, and this is what it says. In the late Old Kingdom and throughout the Middle Kingdom and later, there are myriad examples of hieroglyphs being shown in a truncated state so that they could not harm the body of the deceased. Birds are shown without legs. Lions are featured only in half. Serpents are severed in two and the use of inanimate hieroglyphs are favored over the animate. Hippopotami, manifestations of Seth, were often depicted being hunted with harpoons. Annoying insects, such as mosquitoes, were often rife in Egypt and were never, however, featured in Egyptian tombs. Inconvenient creatures are never shown unless they are being hunted, killed, or consumed. And let's see here. And finally, the Egyptologist Susan Hollis, who is uh, the Egyptologist that I had two or three classes with, and that I will mention every now and again, uh, she had this to say: "Written materials often betray their roots in oral tradition, in the appearance and treatment of actual writing." An example is the attenuation or cutting of parts of various Egyptian hieroglyphs, such as the talons of an owl or the mouth of a wild dog, in order to eliminate the danger that the animation of the animal or bird represents. Writing was thus perceived as more than representation. It was active magic, a characteristic understanding of people who live in an orally based culture. So taken together, these, uh, these quotations go to that point of why they would be reticent to talk about their gods being harmed, because at the very least, they're doing the same things for their loved ones in their tombs. They're trying to make sure that they are not harmed either, uh, either by what is said about them or about the pictures or paintings or writings that surround them after death. Now to connect this to the god Osiris, this is a small passage from Eric Hornung's book, Conceptions of God in Ancient Egypt, The One and the Many. And it says this, the violent death of Osiris at the hands of Seth is so well known that we may happily omit to document it in detail. But references to it are characteristic of the ancient restraint with which the Egyptians report the death of their gods. Texts speak of the tomb and the resurrection of Osiris, and both are even depicted pictorially. There are allusions to what his enemies, quote, did to him, 
his deathly tiredness, and the laments of his sisters Isis and Nephthys are mentioned, but Egyptian texts of the Pharaonic period never say that Osiris died. In the cult celebrations of the Osiris myth at the festival of Abydos, this detail, the god's violent death, remains unmentioned. Again and again, we find this avoidance of explicit statements that a god died, whoever the god may be. For the text, and still more the image, would fix the event and even render it eternal. In the Egyptian view, it is unthinkable that the death of Osiris or his dismemberment by Seth should be represented pictorially and thus be given a heightened and more intense reality. So that we see here that there is there are these two, these two intense poles. On the one hand, they don't want to mention in writing that Osiris or their other gods can die. They don't want to do it in writing. But on the other hand, there's also the intense knowledge that they did and do and continue to die. They can't seem to find a way out of either one. And we're about to see how they dealt with that. Uh, there is a wonderful book for anyone who wants to jump into this subject. Uh, the first one I would actually recommend is the one I just read from by Eric Hornung. Uh, the second is The Complete Gods and Goddesses of Ancient Egypt by Richard Wilkinson. Uh, it's published by Thames and Hudson, so it is lavishly illustrated throughout uh, magnificent illustrations. And it's the most complete guide to the gods that I know of, of ancient Egypt. And this is the short version, you might say. Uh, indeed, the encyclopedia entry version of the story of Osiris. This is what uh, Richard Wilkinson says. In the pyramid texts, Osiris is of primary importance as one of the three most frequently mentioned deities, along with Horus and Ray. It seems clear that once Osiris began to rise to widespread importance, the priests of Heliopolis incorporated him, along with certain other deities, into their own theological framework. The Osiride legends thus incorporate Osiris's, quote, siblings, Isis, Nephthys, and Seth, as well as his son Horus, and they represent, taken together, the most extensive mythic cycle in ancient Egyptian literature. In their developed form, the core myths were preserved by the Greek writer Plutarch, which I will read from in a moment, where essentially it is claimed that the god once ruled Egypt as a king until he was murdered and cruelly dismembered and scattered by his jealous brother Seth. Due to the loyalty and dedication of his wife, Isis, and with the help of their sister Nephthys, Osiris was found and revivified and became the god of the netherworld. Horus, the posthumously conceived son of Osiris and Isis, avenged his father's death by defeating Seth and in time became the king of all Egypt as the rightful heir of Osiris. This story had great appeal both as a theological rationale 
for the Egyptian monarchical system, in which the deceased king was equated with Osiris, and was followed to the throne by his, quote, Horus successor, and also as a story which proffered the hope of immortality through resurrection, which had a universal appeal, and was claimed at first by kings and eventually by nobles and commoners as well. On the other hand, it is equally true that as a thonic god, Osiris retained a measure of the fearsomeness that could be regarded with awe. The pyramid texts preserve this darker aspect of the god in spells which imply the king's protection from Osiris by Ray, as do the coffin texts, which speak of Osiris as a threatening power in some cases, and the Book of the Dead, which along with the god's positive titles also lists epithets such as the terrible. Overall, however, the human origin, vulnerability, and resurrection of the god, and the emphasis on family devotion and loyalty, which runs through the Osiris myths, meant that Osiris was viewed as a benign deity who represented the clearest idea of physical salvation available to the ancient Egyptian. Now to go from there to the ancient sources. The first I will read comes from Plutarch, who lived in uh, the year 46 CE to about the year 119. And this is his book called Isis and Osiris. And I will provide links to all of these texts uh, in the post description. And this is what Plutarch has to say about Osiris. This is how he tells the story as a sort of detached Roman historian and sort of collector of data and, 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 and as a scholar. You can tell that he is a he's a scholar of the material and not a pious believer. He seems to sort of be throwing in everything that he can to fill in the story. And this is what Plutarch says about Osiris. One of the first acts related of Osiris in his reign was to deliver the Egyptians from their destitute and brutish manner of living. This he did by showing them the fruits of cultivation, by giving them laws, and by teaching them to honor the gods. Later, he traveled over the whole earth, civilizing it, without the slightest need of arms, but most people, most of the peoples he won over to his way, by the charm of his persuasive discourse, combined with song and all manner of music. Hence the Greeks came to identify him with Dionysus. During his absence, the tradition is that Typhon, which is Plutarch's name for the god Seth, the tradition is that Typhon attempted nothing revolutionary because Isis, who was in control, was vigilant and alert. But when he returned home, Typhon contrived a treacherous plot against him and formed a group of conspirators, 72 in number. He had also the cooperation of a queen from Ethiopia, who was there at the time and whose name they report as Aso. Typhon, having secretly measured Osiris's body, and having made ready a beautiful chest of corresponding size, artistically ornamented, 
caused it to be brought into the room where the festivity was in progress. The company was much pleased at the sight of it and admired it greatly, whereupon Typhon jestingly promised to present it to the man who should find the chest to be exactly his length when he lay down in it. They all tried it in turn, but no one fitted it. Then Osiris got into it and lay down, and those who were in the plot ran to it and slammed down the lid, which they fastened by nails from the outside and also by using molten lead. Then they carried the chest to the river and sent it on its way to the sea through the Tinnitic mouth. Wherefore the Egyptians even to this day name this mouth of the Nile River the hateful and execrable. Such is the tradition. They say also that the date on which this deed was done was the seventeenth day of Athir, when the sun passes through Scorpion, and in the twenty-eighth year of the reign of Osiris. But some say that these are the years of his life and not of his reign. And in that last comment you can, you can hear Plutarch's uh, scholarship coming through. The first to learn of the deed and to bring to men's knowledge and account of what had been done were the pans and satyrs who lived in the region around Chemis. And so, even to this day, the sudden confusion and consternation of a crowd is called a panic. Isis, when the tidings reached her, at once cut off one of her tresses and put on a garment of mourning in a place where the city still bears the name of Copto. Others think that the name means deprivation, for they also express deprive by means of coptain. But Isis wandered everywhere at her wit's end. No one whom she approached did she fail to address, and even when she met some little children she asked them about the chest that contained Osiris's body. As it happened, they had seen it, and they told her the mouth of the river through which the friends of Typhon had launched the coffin into the sea. Wherefore the Egyptians think that little children possess the power of prophecy, and they try to divine the future from the portents which they find in children's words, especially when children are playing about in holy places and crying out whatever chances to come into their minds. They relate also that Isis, learning that Osiris and his love had consorted with her sister Nephthys through ignorance, in the belief that she was Isis, and seeing the proof of this in the garland of Melilote, which he had left with Nephthys, sought to find the child, for the mother, immediately after its birth, had exposed it because of her fear of Typhon. And when the child had been found, after great toil and trouble, with the help of dogs which led Isis to it, it was brought up and became her guardian and attendant, receiving the name of Anubis, and it is said to protect the gods, just as dogs protect men. Thereafter, Isis, as they relate, learned that the chest had been cast up by the sea near the land of Byblus, and that the waves had gently set it down in the midst of a clump of heather. The heather in a short time ran up into a very beautiful and massive stock, and enfolded and embraced the chest with its growth, and concealed it within its trunk. The king of the country admired the great size of the plant, and cut off the portion that enfolded the chest, which was now hidden from sight, 
and used it as a pillar to support the roof of his house. These facts, they say, Isis ascertained by the divine inspiration of rumor, and came to Biblis and sat down by a spring, all dejection and tears. She exchanged no words with anybody, save only that she welcomed the queen's maidservants and treated them with great amiability, plaiting their hair for them and imparting to their persons a wondrous fragrance from her own body. But when the queen observed her maidservants, a longing came upon her for the unknown woman, and for such hairdressing, and for a body fragrant with ambrosia. Thus it happened that Isis was sent for, and became so intimate with the queen that the queen made her the nurse of her baby. They say that the king's name was Melchander, the queen's name some say was Astarte, others Seosis, and others Nemunus, which the Greeks would call Athenaeus. They relate that Isis nursed the child by giving it her finger to suck instead of her breast, and in the night she would burn away the mortal portions of its body. She herself would turn into a swallow and flit about the pillar with a wailing lament, until the queen who had been watching, when she saw her babe in the fire, gave forth a loud cry and thus deprived it of immortality. Then the goddess disclosed herself and asked for the pillar which served to support the roof. She removed it with the greatest ease and cut away the wood of the heather which surrounded the chest. Then, when she had wrapped up the wood in a linen cloth and had poured perfume upon it, she entrusted it to the care of the kings. And even to this day the people of Biblis venerate this wood which is preserved in the shrine of Isis. Then. The goddess threw herself down upon the coffin with, with such a dreadful wailing that the younger of the king's sons expired on the spot. The elder son she kept with her, and, having placed the coffin on board a boat, she put out from land. Since the Phaedrus River, toward the early morning, fostered a rather boisterous wind, the goddess grew angry and dried up the stream. In the first place where she found seclusion, when she was quite by herself, they relate that she opened the chest and laid her face upon the face within, and caressed it and wept. The child came quietly up behind her and saw what was there, and when the goddess became aware of his presence, she turned about and gave him one awful look of anger. The child could not endure the fright and died. Others will not have it so, but assert that he fell overboard into the sea from the boat that was mentioned above. He also is the recipient of honors because of the goddess, for they say that the Maneros, of whom the Egyptians sing at their convivial gatherings, is this very child. Some say, however, that his name was Palestinus or Pelusius, and that the city founded by the goddess was named in his honor. They also recount that this Maneros, who is the theme of their songs, was the first to invent music. But some say that the word is not the name of any person, but an expression belonging to the vocabulary of drinking and feasting, such as, good luck be ours, and things like this. And that this is really the idea expressed by the exclamation, Maneros, whenever it is that the Egyptians use it. In the same way, we may be sure that the likeness of a corpse, which, as it is exhibited to them, is carried around in a chest, 
is not a reminder of what happened to Osiris, as some assume, but it is to urge them as they contemplate it, to use and to enjoy the present, since all very soon must be what is now, what it is now, and that this is their purpose in introducing it into the midst of merrymaking. As they relate, Isis proceeded to her son Horus, who was being reared in Buto, and bestowed the chest in a place well out of the way. But Typhon, who was hunting by night in the light of the moon, happened upon it. Recognizing the body, he divided it into fourteen parts and scattered them, each in a different place. Isis learned of this and sought for them again, sailing through the swamps in a boat of papyrus. This is the reason why people sailing in such boats are not harmed by the crocodiles, since these creatures, in their own way, show either their fear or their reverence for the goddess. The traditional result of Osiris's dismemberment is that there are many so-called tombs of Osiris in Egypt, for Isis held a funeral for each part when she had found it. Others deny this and assert that she caused effigies of him to be made and that these she distributed among the several cities, pretending that she was giving them his body in order that he might receive divine honors in a greater number of cities, and also that, if Typhon should succeed in overpowering Horus, he might despair of ever finding the true tomb when so many were pointed out to him, all of them called the tomb of Osiris. Of the parts of Osiris's body, the only one which Isis did not find was the male member, for the reason that this had been at once tossed into the river and the Lepidotus, the sea bream, and the pike had fed upon it. And it is from these very fishes the Egyptians are most scrupulous in abstaining. But Isis made a replica of the member to take its place and consecrated the phallus, in honor of which the Egyptians, even at the present day, celebrate a festival. So that is the account given by Plutarch, and this covers what less than four pages. And even there you can see how strange the story is. It's not the way that it would be told today, with all of the interruptions and asides and the sort of corrections and multiple versions that Plutarch is giving to uh, certain parts of the story. And then as the other thing that is worth experience here, experiencing here about this ancient literature and religious literature in particular, even as I said that Plutarch is not himself a, a believer in Osiris, there is still a sense that these things are strange. They are not settled. They are constantly growing their tentacles out. Uh, you can't put them in a box. Uh, you, there would be no, almost no point in making a novel about Osiris for, for people like these, because the, the, the knowledge is so scattered and at the same time so scarce. And so then we come to the great hymn to Osiris. And this dates to uh, 
sometime in the New Kingdom, which was roughly 1550 to 1069 BCE. And if we think that writing was invented in Egypt around 3100 BCE, the pyramid texts, the first of the pyramid texts were inscribed in the walls of the pyramids around 2300 BCE. This is very nearly 2000 years after the invention of writing. And we're talking about a story that is central to these people. And it is this one, this, when you, when you think about its importance, fairly short poem. This is, as the translator says, this hymn contains the fullest account of the Osiris myth extant in Egyptian. Allusions to the Osiris myth are very frequent in Egyptian texts, but they are very brief. If we can imagine having this story be central to your, to your culture, the way that uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, whether you are a Christian or not, is central to Western culture. If you can imagine the next few pages being the most complete version of the story of Jesus uh, for 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years, you can get a sense of just how the Egyptians viewed language and writing and magic. And I should say that this comes from uh, Miriam Lichtheim, who published three volumes of uh, Ancient Egyptian Literature, a Book of Readings. And this is from volume two. This comes from The New Kingdom. So this here is the most complete version of the Osiris myth in the Egyptian. This is what it says. Adoration of Osiris by the overseer of the cattle of Amun, Amenemos and the lady Nefertari, he says, Hail to you, Osiris, Lord of Eternity, King of Gods, of many names, of holy forms, of secret rites and temples, Noble of Ka, he presides in Jedu. He is rich in sustenance in Sechem. Lord of acclaim in Anjati. Foremost in offerings in On. Lord of remembrance in the Hall of Justice. Secret Ba of the Lord of the Cavern. Holy in White Wall. Ba of Ray, his very body. Who reposes in Hines. Who is worshipped in the Naret tree that grew up to bear his Ba. Lord of the Palace of Kanun, much revered in Shashhotep, eternal Lord who presides in Abydos, who dwells distant in the graveyard, whose name endures in people's mouths, oldest in the joined two lands, nourisher before the nine gods, potent spirit among spirits, Nun has given him his waters, north wind journeys south to him, Sky makes wind before his nose, that his heart be satisfied. Plants sprout by his wish. Earth grows its food for him. Sky and its stars obey him. The great portals open for him. Lord of acclaim in the southern sky, sanctified in the northern sky. The imperishable stars are under his rule. The unwearying stars are his abode. One offers to him by Gimp's command. The nine gods adore him. Those in Dat kiss the ground. Those on high bow down. The ancestors rejoice to see him. 
Those yonder are in awe of him. The joined two lands adore him. When his majesty approaches, mightiest nobles among nobles, firm of rank of lasting rule, good leader of the nine gods, gracious, lovely to behold, awe-inspiring to all lands, that his name be foremost, all make offering to him, the Lord of remembrance in heaven and earth, rich in acclaim at the wag feast, hailed in unison by the two lands, the foremost of his brothers, the eldest of the nine gods, who set Ma'at through the two shores, placed the son on his father's seat, lauded by his father Gib, beloved of his mother Nut, mighty when he fells the rebel, strong-armed when he slays his foe, who casts fear of him on his enemy, who vanquishes the evil plotters, whose heart is firm when he crushes the rebels. That's about halfway through here, and you would be right to say, where is the narrative? Where is the story of Osiris? Well, it's not here. It's, uh, it's sort of in the rest of the rest of the prayer, but we've gotten halfway through and there still is no narrative. Um, and you can learn so much about what the Egyptians believed just by noticing that, that they have sort of back-ended or front-ended, I suppose, uh, this, this hymn to Osiris with titles and with praise and just an outpouring of language. And if you think that they really did believe in the magical power of language, how powerful must this first half have been? Uh, just a recycling of titles, a recycling of his power, and a recycling of his general praise over and above what we demand now, which is a comprehensible story. So, the rest of the hymn. Geb's heir and the kingship of the two lands, seeing his worth, he gave it to him. To lead the land to good fortune, he placed this land into his hand, its water, its wind, its plants, all its cattle, all that flies, all that alights, its reptiles and its desert game were given to the son of Nut, and the two lands are content with it, appearing on his father's throne, like Ray when he rises in the light land. He places light above the darkness. He lights the shade with his plumes. He floods the two lands like Aten at dawn. His crown pierces the sky, mingles with the stars. He is the leader of all the gods, effective in the word of command. The greatest Ennead praises him, but the smallest Ennead loves him. His sister was his guard, she who drives off the foes, who stops the deeds of the disturber by the power of her utterance, the clever-tongued whose speech fails not. Effective in the word of command, mighty Isis who protected her brother, who sought him without wearying, who wrote in the land lamenting, not resting till she found him, who made a shade with her plumage, created breath with her wings. So already we've here, Isis is already searching for him, and there is still no mention that he has died. Isis, you enter the story with Isis searching for him and mourning him, although it is not 
explicitly said why she is mourning and what she is searching for. Who made a shade with her plumage, created breath with her wings, who jubilated, joined with her brother, raised the weary one's inertness, received the seed, bore the air, raised the child in solitude, his abode unknown, who brought him when his arm was strong into the broad hall of Geb. The Ennead was jubilant. Welcome, son of Osiris, Horus, firm-hearted, justified, son of Isis, heir of Osiris. The council of Ma'at assembled for him the Ennead. The All-Lord himself, the Lord of Ma'at, united in her, who eschew wrongdoing, they were seated in the hall of Geb, to give the office to its lord, the kingship to its rightful owner. Horus was found justified. His father's rank was given to him. He came out crowned by Geb's command, received the rule of the two shores. The crown placed firmly on his head. He counts the land as his possession. Sky, earth are under his command. Mankind is entrusted to him, commoners, nobles, sunfolk. Egypt and the far-off lands. What Aten encircles is under his care. North wind, river, flood, tree of life, all plants. Nepri gives all his herbs. Fields bounty brings satiety and gives it to all lands. Everybody jubilates. Hearts are glad, breasts rejoice, everyone exalts. All extol his goodness. How pleasant is his love for us. His kindness overwhelms the hearts. Love of him is great in all. They gave to Isis' son his foe. His attack collapsed. The disturber suffered hurt. His fate overtook the offender. The son of Isis, who championed his father. Holy and splendid is his name. Majesty has taken his seat. Abundance is established by his laws. Roads are open, ways are free. How the two shores prosper. Evil is fled. Crime is gone. The land has peace under its lord. Ma'at is established for her lord. One turns the back on falsehood. May you be content when affair. Isis' son has received the crown. His father's rank was assigned him in the hall of Geb. Ray spoke, Toth wrote, the council assented. Your father Geb decreed for you. One did according to his word. An offering, which the king gives to Osiris Kenementu, lord of Abydos, that he may grant an offering of bread and beer, oxen and fowl, ointment and clothing, and plants of all kinds, and the making of transformations, to be powerful as happy, to come forth as a living Ba, to see Aten at dawn, to come and go in Rostau, without one's Ba being barred from the necropolis. May he be supplied among the favored ones before Wenofer, receiving the offsprings, the offerings, that go up on the altar of the great God, breathing the sweet north wind, drinking from the river's pools, for the Ka of the overseer of the cattle of Amun, Amenemos, justified, born of the lady Hennut, justified, and of his beloved wife, the lady Nefertari, justified. So this poem was inscribed on a stele of Amenemos and is the fullest account in Egyptian that we have of the Osiris story. 
And we can see, comparing it to the pyramid texts, that again, this is more uh, a ritual text than it is a narrative. Because that is the strength that e Egyptians saw, simply in ritual rather than a narrative, the kind of narrative that we would expect. And yet there is still great beauty to, to, to this prayer. As strange as, uh, as strange as it is, and I did this on purpose to see how it went from a book about Osiris, or an entry in a book written in 2003 that tells the story of Osiris, and then going back to Plutarch and hearing a full narrative account that was still a little bit odd to our ears, and finally landing here amid the people who actually believed in Osiris, that this is the way they tell the story. And it seems odd to us, but at the same time, how many of us have heard in our houses of worship words like these? Everybody jubilates, hearts are glad, breasts rejoice, everyone exalts, all extol his goodness. How pleasant is his love for us, his kindness overwhelms the hearts, love of him is great in all. Uh, that is one of the reasons why I'm doing this series and why it might take a while uh, in between episodes is that I believe it is immensely important if we're going to look at these stories to look at them in the original and to look at them even if they seem immensely strange and alien because they should but also because in the midst of this experience of what is not us and what hasn't been a living religion for 2,000 years, there is still something that looks like the image that we might see if we look ourselves into a mirror. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.